Thank you so much for being here and for inviting me. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how much I feel at home here. Um, I love that song. Thank you, Jeff. That was really, really powerful. Um, I'm aware that uh, the most immediate tension-producing event was the Soul Force yesterday. Some of our folks came over. Daniel, one of our youth ministers, came over with a bunch of our teenagers to just talk where they could. I don't know if you know, but emotionally inside of me, I'm sort of trembling with the, the Trayvon Martin case in Florida, wondering how explosive that's going to become. You know, the young black man who is shot with a glass of tea in his hand and some candy. Um, so that's a little bit of the national and neighborhood tension that we meet in. And here's the relation to my mission's message. Here, whenever something like this happens, you and I operate out of an incredible wealth of gospel blessing. We've got something to say into these situations. There are peoples all over the world, several thousand of them, with zero gospel, zero church, zero missionaries, no engagement, and no church. And if things explosive and tense and horrible happen there, nobody brings the gospel to bear on that crisis. So that's what missions is about, trying to turn that situation around for the glory of Jesus. Let me pray that God would help us in this now. So Father, I plead with you that you would come into this room in power now. And here are hundreds of young people, most of them I would assume saying to you right now, just make it plain and I'm there. Just make it plain, I'll stay. Make it plain, I'll go. Just come and rivet my heart on your ambition for my life, and I will follow. So I'm asking, Lord, that you would give a holy ambition with some new measures of clarity to hundreds of these young people concerning being goers, senders. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So my goal is, is uh, to persuade you that having a holy ambition is a good thing, and then to be used of God by his word from the book of Romans to bring clarity and intensity to that ambition. So that's where we're going. And if you have a Bible and you want to go with me, you could go to Romans 15. And I'm going to read verses 18 to 24. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles, the nations, to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, 
by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you, there you can see the goer and the sender. I don't want you all to go with me. I want some of you to support me as I go. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So focus your attention for just a moment on verse 20. <clears throat> Thus I make it my ambition. That's where I'm getting the title for this talk, Holy Ambition. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ is already named, known by name, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So Paul was controlled by a holy ambition. And the reason I say he was controlled by it is verse 22. He says, this, referring back now to the ambition, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. And then he says in verse 23, I have longed for many years to come to you. Well, if you long to go to somebody and you don't go, you're being controlled, either inwardly or outwardly, by something that's keeping you from doing what you long to do that's good to do. And he says, what's controlling me, what's hindering me from coming to you is I have an ambition to preach the gospel where it hasn't been named from Jerusalem to Illyricum, Albania, and I'm not done. So it was holding him where he was while he was moving through that part of the world, and he wasn't free. His ambition to do his calling to minister the gospel where it hadn't been named was still happening as he moved up from Jerusalem, through Syria, across Turkey, down through Greece, up toward Albania. He wasn't done yet. And now... Evidently, he's done. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So he's freed to move by now a holy ambition that is evidently not going away, but the focus of it is shifting to Spain. Now, what I want to happen here is that 
yours crystallizes. And they're not the same. Every one of you will have a slightly different holy ambition. And may God use this exposition to crystallize and clarify and solidify your holy ambition. I'm calling it holy because the, the goal is holy and the, and the origin is holy. So the goal is to preach Christ where he's not been named so that people will awaken to faith and become obedient and then uh, magnify Christ and that's holy in the world. Hallowed be thy name is what we want to happen in the world. It happens through people falling in love with Christ and considering him as infinitely valuable and reverencing and hallowing his name all over the world. And the, the origin of that ambition was the call of God on his life. And so I'm calling it and yours a holy ambition. It's not about self-exaltation. It's about Christ's exaltation. I just finished this book uh, about three days ago called Godly Ambition, John Stott and the Evangelical Movement. It's a biography, 160 pages with another 60 pages of footnotes. So it's a real, real scholarly type biography, but riveting in its uh, exposition to me, anyway, <laughs> of this man's life. I love biography. John Stott died last July, and I hope his name is familiar to you all. Uh, he was a great model to me. When I was in college, I read Men Made New, a little yellow book on Romans 5 to 8, and it just blew me away about what exposition could be as I read it as a person your age. So everybody has his heroes. This is one of mine, and so I, I want to read this, and I read it, and it's called Godly Ambition, and at the end, he explains this, Alistair Chapman explains why he titled it this way, and he quotes from Stott's exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll just read you one paragraph from Stott in this book. Ambitions for God, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? That's a very powerful sentence. How can we ever be content that he would, and now you could add, through me, acquire just a little more honor in the world? No. Once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor and accorded his true place, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere. So the reason I read this is because I'm 66 and I have probably one more year at Bethlehem overlapping with a new person soon. Lord willing. And then, and then I'm freer than ever. I feel like I'm 18 all over again, <laughs> or 22, or whatever that juncture is. And Stott finished at All Souls as a pastor in 1975, and I wanted to see how he did it. 
And what he shifted to, and he shifted to a, a world Christian of an unusual kind, caring more about third world uh, pastors than about British pastors. And I got these rumblings inside of me like, okay, a fresh, new, holy ambition. What will it be? And I feel like I need to go into Arabia with my wife for a year or so and just find out what it is. I was saying to some folks the other day, my dad died at 86 and he had Alzheimer's growingly at the last five years of his life. I said, okay, so I heard my dad preach when he was 76, 77, and it was really powerful. And then, and then he didn't know my name in the last months. And so somewhere between 76 and 86, I'm probably not going to be useful anymore. But if I could be useful till 77, I got 10 more years. So I'm not just talking to you, okay? This is about discovery at whatever stage in life we are. Now, you face a, a unique challenge because I'm going to read you how weird you, you, you guys are. And I mean your generation of 18 to 30 and um, there were about five books were published on you in the last six years under various names of adultolescence, that sort of thing. So you got to know where I'm going here. And, and I'm preaching this to help you not be that. Okay? So here's a quote from uh, Christian Smith, a sociologist, I think, at the University of Notre Dame, about you, based on those six books. Teenager and Adolescence. This is helpful for you to know a little history here. Teenager. The term teenager didn't always exist. You know that? It's a new word. Teenager and adolescence as representing distinct stages in life for very much of the 20th century are inventions of the 20th century brought into being by changes in mass education, child labor laws, urbanization, suburbanization, mass consumerism, media. Similarly, a new, distinct, and important stage in life situated between the teenage years and full-fledged adulthood has emerged in our culture in recent decades, reshaping the meaning of self, youth, relationships, life commitments, as well as a variety of behaviors and dispositions among the young. What has emerged from this situation has variously been labeled extended adolescence, so you, you stay in adolescence until you're 30, youthhood, adultolescence, young adulthood, 20-somethings, emerging adulthood. And one way this group can be defined is to highlight some of its tendencies, and I'll just read you his list. Now, this is his take, I mean, these five or six books being reviewed by Smith, his take on what characterizes the millions of you that exist. Identity exploration, instability, focus on self, feeling in limbo, in transition, in between, sense of possibilities, opportunities, and unparalleled hope. These, of course, are often accompanied with transience, confusion, anxiety, self-obsession, melodrama, conflict, and disappointment. And my aim here is to wave a big flag over this assembly and plead with you at the front end of your 20s, probably most of you right around that area, that you just skip this, skip this stage. 
Little girls, I've only had one daughter, four sons, so I'm just learning about little girls. She's 16 now, but um, little girls, normally, I'm talking three years old or so, two, like dolls. That's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. Not a good thing to be playing with dolls when you're 23. You grow from a good thing to a good thing, from a good thing to a better thing. At 12, I get to take care of real babies in the nursery. And then at 18, 22, you're dreaming, I could, I could form an organization and care for AIDS babies, babies with no mommy and daddy. And I could lead a movement. That's what it is to grow up. Little boys, they don't like dolls. They like guns, <laughs> balls, trucks, dirt. Like speaking from my own experience, anyway. <laughs> However, to turn guns, Matt Dillon, gun, and Lucas McCain, you can tell my generation, um, to turn those into video games for 12 or 13 years is insane. Insane. <laughs> Why didn't I hear a man say amen? Can I hear a man say amen? So we, we grow up, and you can skip. You can skip the video game season and go straight to real life. Wield the sword of the Spirit for mighty deeds in Christ. Drive a truckload of love to the needy. Kick Satan's rear end for Jesus. <clears throat> now the question is, if you're going to grow up and, and skip that adult lessons nonsense, where does the holy ambition, identification, and, and intensification, where does it come from? So right now, if I were to send you out to find it, where would I send you? What would I tell you to do? Because I just want to look at the text for now again. I think the answer to that question comes in the link between verses 20 and 21. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. That's the end of verse 20. Here comes 21. But as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah 52, 15. Those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Now, that may not strike you as amazing, but here's why it strikes me as amazing. Paul is giving an account of the origin of his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, and to give that account, he says, as it is written. He quotes Isaiah. You know what I would expect him to do? Damascus Road. Good grief. If I 
had experienced what Paul experienced on the Damascus Road, I would never stop telling that story. I was walking down the road or riding on my donkey, and a light shone. I fell off my horse. I couldn't see for three days. The creator of the universe and Jesus spoke to me and called me and said, I'm sending you to the nations to deliver them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's my call, for goodness sakes. Why are you quoting Isaiah? I mean, does that trouble you? Troubles me. It's really, it's really a puzzle to me. And it's so wonderful. Let me at least give, let me give you, what's your take on that? Here, my take is, is this. Paul knows that these folks he's writing to, and when I preach this text to you, he knows you're not going to have that duplicate experience. You might have an amazing experience of call, but probably isn't going to measure up to Damascus. Therefore, if he keeps telling this story about the origin of his holy ambition, he's just going to outclass everybody. He's, just, he's, he's, going to, he's going to make you all feel like, well, I could never discern a holy ambition if that's the way you get it because I've never seen that light. I've never been blinded. I've never heard a voice out of heaven speaking that way. Good grief. I, I suppose one person in a million gets an, a holy ambition. But if he... If he wants to communicate to us, no, 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 no. When, when I fell off my horse and then went into town and then went away for three years to meet with God, all I did was read my Bible for three years. I'm guessing. All I did was read my Bible and say, God, i got to rethink my whole life. I'm a Pharisee, and I've missed everything. I just missed it totally. I've got to read my Bible and rethink everything from the ground up, the Lordship of Jesus. And that's what he did, I think. And as he read, certain texts exploded for him, confirming Damascus. They just exploded. That's how it happens. Happened to me, your age. No, between 22 and 25. This is this morning. I'll show you how it keeps happening. I read Psalm 86 this morning in my devotions. I just read Psalm 86. You know what verse? Bang! Off the page to me. Verse 9, which says, All the nations that I have made will come and worship before me and will glorify my name. Everything in me said, yes, that's what I love. I love your supremacy. I love your kingship. I love your glory. That happened to me at a point in time when I was a young man, and I have not been able to shake it to this day. If you read what I've written, that's all I have to say. God is great. Get in line. <laughs> and so uh, that, that will happen to you. That, that won't be the verse. Another verse may just sear itself onto your conscience, and you'll never get away from it. You will never be able to leave it. You'll be 18, and then it'll be there when you're 25. It'll be when you're 35, 45, 55. It'll have all kinds of different expressions, but something will take you in these days if you seek his face. You lay yourself open to the living Christ as you read his written, inspired word. He will move on you, and something in this will become a word to you. 
I have a lot more confidence in this than I do to things I hear otherwise. I know you're Pentecostals, okay? I know that. You could call this a warning, <laughs> but you know that warning. You don't need me to belabor it. This is the measure of all of this. I hope we agree with that. And so this is where I feel like I'm on rock solid ground with my king. And if every time I'm reading through his word, the same kind of thing pushes it on me again and again and again, I say, okay, I got a holy ambition. I got a call on my life. I cannot explain why this is there, why it originated the way it was. Why does hallowed be thy name come back to me as my favorite prayer over and over again? I don't know. I don't care to know. I just love it. I love to be laid hold on by the word and the living Christ. So that's what I want to happen to you. And the way to find it is to immerse yourself in this book with all humility and total availability to Christ until, you won't let him go until he gives you a holy ambition. And the spring of, of 2012 would be a really good time to find it. It may take longer. Don't, don't presume upon God. You can't make God do this. He does it when and how he pleases. There is a global strategy that God has in his plan for you all. And I want to make one more observation from the text, how you can all, all of you, fit into that global strategy. Back to verse 19. From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. On the one hand, I want to say, I mean, when I first began to think about this, I want to say, that's crazy. Picture it now. You got, you got the map in your mind? Okay, which, which way are you looking at? Okay, there's Jerusalem over here. All right, let's do it this way. Jerusalem, southern Palestine. There's Syria. Turkey, up into Greece, Macedonia, down into Achaia, Corinth, Athens, up the, the west coast, and you arrive at Illyricum. And Paul says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the gospel. And then to, to make it more outrageous, in verse 23 he says, I have no longer any room for work in these regions. <laughs> That's a lot of region. And guess what? There are tens of thousands of unbelievers there. How do I know that? Because he left Timothy in Ephesus and wrote him a letter and said, do the work of an evangelist. I'm finished. I have no room for work. And you want to say, what? Why don't you come join Timothy and do the work of an evangelist here? I mean, Minneapolis is a needy place. And you say, I got no room for work in Minneapolis. That's what he said. Well, what do you make of that? I'm going to Spain. And I'm stopping in Rome so they can, we can enjoy each other. They strengthen me and maybe I can 
recruit some missionary support there. And, and he, he's on to Spain. So here's my conclusion. But my, when I say strategy, this is what I mean. In God's economy of getting the job done, meaning the lordship of Jesus acknowledged in every people group with a thriving church there that can do evangelism in its own culture and language, the strategy is some of you, and by all means not all of you, with no second-class citizens. The president was saying, you know, I have two altars here, right? Like the 411 and the 412. I'm just starting to catch on to this language. My, my language is there's Timothy-type missionaries and there's Paul-type missionaries. The Timothy-type went from Lystra to Ephesus, plugged in there, gave his life to do evangelism around Ephesus. Paul says, i got no room for work there. He's another brand. His, his holy ambition is another brand of missionary, not a better brand, a different brand, a needed brand. Some of you called to lay down your life in the hardest places of the world where a language has to be learned, a culture has to be crossed, all kinds of strategies of fitting in has to be done. Give your life there in order to plant the gospel there, lift the flag for King Jesus and see a movement to him by the power of the gospel. That's what some of you will be called. I call those Paul-type missionaries. And then, of course, he said to the church in Rome, I want you to send me on my way. So we say at our church, there are three kinds of people, goers, senders, and disobedient. There, aren't, there isn't a third kind. So, so all of you as, you, as you engage in school and then after school, you are either passionately going or passionately sending. Because whether, whether you're a carpenter or a nurse or a homemaker or whatever you are, a Christian heart burns that the gospel be known and Christ be exalted among all the peoples of the world. Let me close like this. When you read um, what's happening in the global south these days with the astonishing shifting of the center of Christianity from Europe and from America down into South America and Africa and Asia and the millions that are more vibrantly coming to Christ than they are in Europe and, and here. One of the things you sometimes hear is, and God is raising up, which he is, uh, tens of thousands of uh, third world or whatever language is appropriate, missionaries from the Philippines and from Brazil and Argentina and Nigeria and South Korea. And these missionaries are, are going out and, and then there are these indigenous Evangelists in India, say, who are going hundreds of miles or 10 miles, and so you rich Westerners can just stay home and send us your money. Now, I do not want to oppose you sending money to indigenous missions if you have all the appropriate um, ways of guaranteeing its proper use in place, but I do not buy that argument. There is a place for you, your skin, your hair, your language, and your ability to learn another language, and your peculiar cultural place in Nepal, that an indigenous missionary in Nepal may himself not be able to do. 
I'm just going to illustrate this with a closing email that I'm going to read you, and then we'll pray. There is a friend of mine, he's sat in my house a few blocks from here, and uh, he has a website called china.myadventures.org. He's probably in his mid-30s now, saved uh, about your age, I think, and, and, he, and now he's there in, uh, in western China. And he addresses that issue in an email to me from uh, his standpoint. And it was very moving to me because of the risks he's taking. And, and uh, so let me read it to you. After spending my first three years in a Christ, as a Christian in the United States, involved in tons of personal evangelism, and now after having spent seven, now that would have been December 17, 2009, I got this email, so about another two and a half years later, so about the 10 years he's there now. So after seven years living in some of the most gospel-deprived regions in the world, I am very frustrated by the amount of gospel preaching that takes place in the West compared to the complete ignorance of the gospel that exists all around me over here. Let me explain myself a little better. Although it seems that the laborers are so few even in America, it is impossible to even compare the amount of gospel knowledge available to the average American with the utter lack of the gospel found in certain areas around the world. I happen to live in one of those places. In brief, within a few hundred miles of where I am sitting right now, there are millions of Tibetan Buddhists and Chinese Muslims scattered throughout tens of thousands of towns and villages. The vast majority of these people have never heard anything true about Christianity. And with the exception of just a handful, the villages have never in the history of mankind been graced by the presence of a minister of the gospel. The lack of the gospel in this place is overwhelming. And I truly believe that God will call more people out into these far-flung corners of the world if only they have a chance to hear about the needs, I'm telling you. If they have a chance to hear about the need and are shown how they can do something about it. I simply want to encourage the Western church to wake up and realize that dozens of regions around the world are still completely devoid of the gospel. And most of these places are difficult places for even native missionaries to work. It is going to take people like you, he's talking to me and my church, it's going to take people like you and me, that is Western cross-cultural missionaries, to be sent to go to learn these languages and share the gospel with these people. For instance, the large number of Christians in China 
are primarily located in the eastern half of the country, and their culture is radically different from that of the Tibetans and the Chinese Muslims. Much of the time, the Western missionaries do far better job reaching out to these minorities than do the Chinese, especially with the racism and that exists in China and the recent wars that minorities have often fought against the ruling Chinese. Now, those are the kinds of dynamics no one can predict. God's call on your life matters more than your analysis. Oh, I don't, I don't think a Westerner could possibly be of any use. Surely a Chinese person ministering to Chinese Muslims would be way more effective. He says, no, not here, not around me. I hope I have explained my burden. Clearly, he says enough. Please let me know if anybody has any thoughts, comments, or questions for the glory of God. We want to see more laborers raised up to reach the millions with the gospel. So I close with this um, suggested prayer for you. I'll say it, then I'll pray it, okay? Then we'll be done. I want you to pray, Lord, I won't let you go. And I'm talking years now, not just days. I won't let you go until you give me a holy ambition for my life. It's big enough to correspond to the way you are and what you've made me to be in your calling. Forbid me that I should waste my life. I don't even want to waste my student days. Show me your glory. Show me your passion for your glory. Draw me into it. I don't want to be famous. I want to be faithful. Can you all say that? I don't want to be famous. I don't, I don't want to be famous. I want to be faithful. As small as I feel, even in this student body, as small as I feel in this crowd, I want my life to count for something connected to you. Show me, grant me in this spring a holy ambition. So, Father, as we get ready to leave now, That'd be good just to be quiet for a moment. Let's just take 30 seconds, maybe. Father, immerse these young people in your holy word. And then as they're meditating, memorizing, praying, applying to their lives, burn your ambition into their lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. You've been very helpful. <laughs>